Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Tuesday, October 25th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Peace talks between Ethiopia and Tigray enter their second day today in South Africa as the U.S. State Department expresses its support. The interest of the United States is the interest of the Ethiopian people to see the restoration of peace, to see an end to the violence, and that's why we've supported the African Union-led talks in South Africa. An analyst says ceasefire agreement in the Ethiopia Tigray talks must be enforceable. Uganda confirms Ebola in Kampala as officials urge the public not to hide possible cases. Kenyan officers in this bandit unit are tried for murder, torture, and abduction. Meanwhile, Kenyan police kill a prominent Pakistani journalist, a prediction on the future of Zambia's ruling political alliance. Nigerian authorities are on alert after the U.S. Embassy issues a security warning. I was actually about boarding my flight when I received this email telling me of you know, the cancellation of my appointment. And our six of ten profiles of the first annual Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Talks in South Africa between the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, entered their second day today, Tuesday. Yesterday, Monday, State Department spokesperson Ned Price expressed U.S. support for the talks during his daily press briefing. The interest of the United States is the interest of the Ethiopian people uh, to see the restoration of peace, to see an end to the violence, uh, to see uh, a sovereign whole. Ethiopia. And that's why we've supported the African Union-led talks in South Africa uh, to address the ongoing conflict in northern Ethiopia that uh, has cost so many lives, uh, has led to atrocities, has led to bloodshed, has led to starvation, has aggravated so many underlying factors. Uh, We commend South Africa for hosting the talks. We stand ready Uh, to support the African Union High Representative Obasanjo and the AU panel members, former South African Deputy Prime Minister Labo Kuka and former Kenyan President Kenyatta in facilitating uh, in an agreement. Uh, And uh, to that end, our special envoy uh, for the Horn of Africa, Mike Hammer, is in South Africa to observe and to participate in the AU-led talks uh, along with United Nations and IGAD and to support efforts to have an immediate cessation of hostilities to deliver humanitarian assistance uh, to all Ethiopians in need to prevent further human rights abuses and atrocity, atrocities and to secure Eritrea's withdrawal from northern Ethiopia. Those are our interests, but importantly, those are also the interests of the Ethiopian people. That was State Department spokesperson Ned Price commenting on the peace talks between Ethiopia and Tigray in South Africa. A Horn of Africa analyst says a possible outcome of the peace talks in South Africa between the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, is a ceasefire. But Hassan Kanaji, director of the Horn International Institute, a think tank based in Nairobi, Kenya, says such a ceasefire must have enforcement mechanisms, including a monetary mission and military and economic sanctions backed by powerful nations. The talks, sponsored by the African Union, 
began Monday and come at a time when Ethiopian forces, supported by Eritrea, appear to be making huge gains on the battlefield. White House spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre on Monday described the conflict as one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world and called for immediate end to all hostilities. Analyst Kananji tells me the South Africa talks are long overdue. They're coming against the background of previously failed attempts to bring the party to a negotiating table, but also against the background of recent successes by the government of the battlefield. And so the dynamic has changed a lot. But then that has also meant that the humanitarian situation, especially in the Tigris region, has actually got worse. And so the talks coming at this critical moment are timely and uh, highly welcome. The international community, including the United Nations Secretary General, would like a ceasefire. Do you think that is possible there at the talks? A ceasefire is difficult, but it is not impossible. And the reason why there is a sense that there is no military solution to this conflict, uh, despite the recent successes on the battlefield by the government of Prime Minister Abia. Now, what is going to be important if the framework is going to provide both a carrot and sticks, meaning there are going to be sufficient sanctions to enforce whatever terms are going to be right, then the likelihood of a ceasefire is going to happen. But in the absence of enforcement mechanisms, then it's going to be very difficult to ensure that uh, the parties are going to observe that ceasefire. But ceasefire is in the offing, and we should expect that part of the outcome of these negotiations is actually going to be a ceasefire on the ground. What do you suggest as an enforcement mechanism? What do you think might work? What may work is an observation mission, number one, to be able to monitor and to ensure that the parties do not return or you know, violate the ceasefire. But secondly, there has to be provisions which do not exactly have to be made public but they have to be provisions to be backed by powerful third-party actors with regard to potential economic and military sanctions as well as diplomatic sanctions of those who are going to violate the ceasefire. Because previously we have seen this thing violated over and over again without any sense of accountability. So in the absence of an enforcement mechanism in the form of sanctions, diplomatic, economic, as well as military, it's going to be very difficult to see the, the entire process through, considering just the complexity of the conflict not to mention that he has attracted a lot of international players, notably the country of Eritrea. Based on information we gather, both sides, the TPLF and the Ethiopian government, have sent huge delegations to the talks in South Africa. What does this indicate? There is a recognition on both sides that uh, this may be one of those few avenues remaining to reach a settlement. Even though, of course, on the government side, there is a calculation that it may be having a stronger hand considering its recent success. But I think both recognize the impossibility of perhaps achieving the kind of of military success that is going to ensure that uh, they attain the objectives. We do appreciate very much speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Four former Kenyan police officers charged with the murders of three people, including two Indian nationals, went on trial in Nairobi on Monday. The officers were part of a unit disbanded recently by President William Ruto for alleged extrajudicial killings. Victoria Amuga reports from Nairobi. Kenyan prosecutors accused the former officers of murdering two Indian nationals and their Kenyan driver whose remains were found in a forest last week. 
the Indian men Zulfikar Ahmed Khan and Mohammed Zaid Sami Kidwai were in Kenya to work on electoral campaign of President Ruto who was elected in August. Kenyan media report the officers were taken into custody by police in late July. The four officers were members of a special services unit that Ruto disbanded this month for allegedly carrying out extrajudicial killings and disappearances. Kenya's Independent Policing Oversight Authority says the unit is suspected in the disappearance of more than 100 people this year alone. Addressing a news conference Monday, the authorities' chairperson Anne Makori said the unit is suspected of torturing victims and dumping their bodies in Kenya's Yala River. In January 2022, the authorities launched investigations into the incidents in which 25 dead bodies were recovered from Rivayara on diverse dates. Having attended all the post-mortem examinations, the general emerging thread as cause of death was determined as out of these bodies, 12 had had injuries. The authority continues to investigate other disappearances connected to the unit. In addition to murder charges, the four ex-officers on trial are accused of abuse of office and conspiracy to commit felonies. If found guilty, they could face up to a life in prison. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. Kenya's Police Oversight Authority says it is investigating the shooting death of a well-known Pakistani investigative journalist, Asha Sharif, at a checkpoint on Sunday. Police say the shooting of the 50-year-old journalist was a case of mistaken identity. The Kenya Union of Journalists condemned the killing of Sharif, who fled Pakistan in August, citing threats. Mohammed Yusuf reports from Nairobi, Kenya. Kenyan police say they shot at the vehicle driven by Arshad Sharif's brother as the car did not stop at the checkpoint. The officers said they mistook the vehicle for one that was connected to a child kidnapping in Nairobi. In a statement, Kenyan police said they regret the killing of the journalist. Kenya Union of Journalists Secretary General Charles Eric Oduor condemned the incident. So we must condemn this act that will say that in the event that police were suspecting that these people were in a stolen car, they should not have killed uh, the journalist. They should have found a way of arresting him in the event that uh, they were following this car, not killing the journalist. So we condemn that with strongest term, and we believe that uh, once we are in the facts, this police officer in the next few days should be arraigned in court and charged with murder. The slain journalist fled Pakistan in August, citing death threats and multiple court cases launched against him and several other journalists on controversial sedition charges. Pakistani Prime Minister Shehbaz Sharif said he spoke to Kenyan President William Ruto about the journalist's death and requested that Kenyan authorities provide fairness and transparency in the investigation. Kenya's Independent Police Oversight Authority, IPOA, investigates the behaviour of the police. Commission Chairperson Anne Makori said her agency was looking into the incident. There is a red police killing of a Pakistani national at Tinga Market, Kajiado County, last evening. Our rapid response team has already been dispatched to look at that matter. Udur says he has doubts about the circumstances in which Sharif was killed. So we are still finding that that is a false play and... Uh... We are still engaging police. Yeah, of course, we want investigations from, um, because police have already assured us that independent police oversighting authority has already dispatched a team to go to Kajiado and carry out investigations. 
So we believe that uh, we will have thorough investigations that if there is uh, something else other than what police is telling us. Last week, Ruto disbanded a special police unit accused of abuses and the extrajudicial killings of civilians. Four officers in the unit were arrested. They were arraigned in court Monday in connection with the disappearances of two Indian nationals and their Kenyan driver. A report released in 2020 by the AIPOA said most cases involving police abuses and killings go without a successful conviction. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Botti in Washington. Today is Tuesday, October 25th. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Ugandan health authorities have confirmed nine cases of the Ebola virus in the capital, Kampala. The Ministry of Health says it has increased vigilance and set up an isolation center as confirmed cases in the country jumped to 90 with 28 deaths. The Uganda Medical Health Association says health workers are facing challenges getting patients into isolation, as Halima Athumani reports from Kampala. In a tweet, Monday. Health Minister General Thacheng confirmed that Kampala had recorded 14 positive Ebola cases in the last 48 hours, all have the Sudan strain. Ministry spokesperson Emmanuel Ainebiona tells VOA the public needs to know that Ebola is now within close range with contact numbers in Kampala now above 1,800. There is Ebola in Kampala without a doubt. The beauty is that we have already an isolation facility at Morago. We are setting up in the playing field at Morago. We have an isolation facility in Entebbe. And uh, most of the people testing are contacts who have been in our isolation and quarantine. In Acheng's tweet, she asked Ugandans to report themselves if they or a person they know had contact with an Ebola patient. But healthcare workers around the country say they are facing obstacles. Dr. Sam Oledo, president of the Uganda Medical Association, says the public's habit of seeking local remedies and treatment from herbalists remains a challenge and places health workers at risk. If you are in contact of someone who is under isolation, report yourself. Other than you hiding and predisposing everyone. But now the community members are going to help us to report to authorities which herbalists, which African traditionists is seeing patients. The government is currently in the process of recruiting nearly 1,500 additional staff to combat the Ebola outbreak. The Ebola Sudan strain currently has no proven effective vaccine. Uganda has received supplies of two trial vaccines, the Oxford vaccine from the United Kingdom and the Sabine vaccine from the United States. But authorities are waiting for clearance from medical investigators before rolling them out to the public. Halima Athmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. Nigerian authorities are calling for calm and vigilance after the U.S. Embassy in the capital Abuja issued a security alert warning of an elevated risk of terror attacks, especially in the city. The embassy urged Americans in Nigeria to avoid non-essential travel and crowds and to stay alert. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. 
The U.S. Embassy warned Sunday that government buildings, places of worship, schools, markets, shopping malls, bars, and hotels could soon be attacked. It urged American citizens in Nigeria to avoid non-essential travel and keep their mobile phones charged. The embassy also said it would reduce working hours as a result, but did not respond to a request for further comment on the matter. Abuja-based security expert Senator Iribu says the warning is not surprising. We don't know the uh, extent of intelligence that is based in line with the security realities. Nigerian authorities have struggled to hold a stream of terror attacks and abductions across the country. The situation is especially worrying in the north where Islamist militant groups and armed gangs who routinely kidnap people for ransom are active. In July, heavily armed men breached the security of a correctional facility in Abuja and freed more than 800 inmates. More than half of them were later recaptured, but hundreds remain on the loose, including 64 high-profile terrorism suspects. Islamic State West Africa province claimed responsibility for the attack. Ibrebu says the threat to security has grown in Abuja, also known as the Federal Capital Territory, since the prison break. Even the military admitted there are sleeper cells of um, ISIS and other Boko Haram elements, even within El city and other surrounding uh, states, uh, and that this sleeper cell could be activated anytime. And since then, there is no any news team aware of. The presence of these sleeper cells have been unraveled and um, neutralized. Nigerian Kelvin Obumeke said he had an appointment at the embassy Monday to discuss a travel issue. The sudden security threat upended those plans. I was actually about boarding my flight when I received this email stating this and telling me of, you know, the cancellation of my appointment. I was mad livid, considering the emergency at which I needed to come to Abuja and how I had to purchase a premium ticket because I needed to be here today. Nigeria's Department of State Services responded to the U.S. Embassy's security warning in a statement Sunday, urging citizens to stay calm but cautious. Authorities also reassured citizens that security forces would mobilize to avert any threat to national security and encouraged members of the public to report suspicious acts of criminality to the authorities. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. The leader of the All People's Congress, APC, an alliance partner of the ruling United Parties for National Development, UPND, predicts that the coalition will fail. Together, they helped the UPND win the last general election. Nesson Msani says the administration has sidelined opposition parties that formed the alliance with the UPND. But supporters of the ruling party disagree. Viewers Peter Clotty reached Nesson Msani to ask about the rationale behind his statements. First, we don't have the structural framework. The constitution officially does not provide for political alliances. So political alliances are formed chiefly for conveniences only to try and avoid vote splitting. And also you work out, you iron out, you iron out a gentleman agreement by saying that the party which we shall use as a vehicle, once we achieve we win the election. We shall apportion cabinet positions. We shall apportion all government positions in a certain percentage. 
that uh, all of you agree. Now, with this kind of setup, that is not backed by the Constitution, is that the gentleman whose party you use, when he's sworn in as president, he drops everything else because you can't challenge him. But people are saying that you went into the alliance based on your personal political interest. And because your party, or perhaps you, were not giving some of the positions, that is why you are saying political alliances are dead and that this is selfish of you. What do you say to that? No, no, not at all. It's a deceit. Because we don't go into alliances for the sake of it. We are partakers. We must be part of the process of governance. We must share responsibility. That's why we agreed to work together. And for that reason, other political leaders hand down or put away their political ambition to give way for the person, the flag bearer who you put forward, that when he wins the election, then all of you work together as a team. Look at what is common in terms of policies. That was Nelson Msani, leader of the All People's Congress APC Party of Zambia. You are speaking with viewers Peter Clotty. The U.S. Africa Business Center of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is holding its first Africa Digital Innovation Competition for Africa Startups. VOA is working as a media partner with the Africa Business Center on the initiative. Out of 17,000 candidates in 50 countries in Africa, the top 10 finalists are being decided. And for the next two weeks, we'll bring you a look at each one. Today, we hear from Imodoye Abioro from Nigeria. His company, Land and Arm, uses a mobile application and a 24-7 call center to serve as a logistics hub for medical facilities around Nigeria. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, Young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. Big business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West, and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. My name is Imadoye Abiyara. I'm a medical doctor. I'm co-founder and CEO of Health Botics Limited, the creators of Lemdanon. I'm 28 years old and I'm from the state here in Nigeria. I applied to the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition because of my belief in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce as they were one of the first organizations that helped us and gave us uh, support back in the early days of our pilots. What it means to me to be one of the top 10 finalists is a testament to the incredible amount of work that my colleagues and I have put at London on. Lemdanam being one of the top 10 innovations at this competition means that conversation is changing. People are now paying attention to what happens at the last mile of healthcare delivery, and that makes us very happy. And Lemdanam is a single turnkey solution for hospital procurements at the last mile. So typically what would happen would be that hospitals would interface with almost five, six different agents before getting their procurement needs every single month. 
Lendenum is a solution that centralizes that entire process, allowing hospitals to get all of their required inputs from a single access point. We source and procure and deliver to their doorstep. Stockouts are the single most common cause of mortality in primary health care. Stockouts of drugs, oxygen, blood, and essentials like that. These are the problems that Lendenum specifically tackles. The hospitals will support see an average of 1,500,000 patients in a year, about 20 to 30 patients every day. And when you add that together, that's over a million patients every year that these hospitals see. What's the first thing I would do if we win the competition? That's very interesting. I'll probably call my co-founder, share the good news with them, and probably call my parents as well. But most importantly, I would be sure to inform our current customers that their plights and the solution we're providing to that has gotten international recognition and support from the people who really matter. That was Imo Doye Abioro from Nigeria. And that's it for this Tuesday, October 25th edition of Daybreak Africa. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barty in Washington wishing you will have an amazing Tuesday. Oh.